I loved my fourth grade teacher, Miss Upchurch. And she admired my birdhouse that won third prize in the Cub Scout Birdhouse Building Competition so much that I didn't have the heart to tell her that my stepfather had actually built it while I had silently watched him until it got late and I had to go to bed. Pop was one intense and wiry man with Gene Hackman eyes, deep and scary, and I always felt too shy to break his bubble of concentration. I have a glossy photo of myself in my freshly pressed Cub Scout uniform, holding that wonderful birdhouse in Miss Upchurch's classroom, little paper robins on the felt board behind me. But Miss Upchurch also admired my first important essay, one I had written all by myself called Should America Go to War with Africa? Now, I hadn't quite gotten it right. America was, at the time, in imminent danger of going to war with the Soviet Union. At school, we had duck-and-cover drills to rehearse how we'd all become nuclear french fries under our respective desks in the event of an attack, so I should have known it wasn't Africa we were mad at. But my father's animosity towards the coloreds, America's term back then, had me convinced that an international crisis might suddenly erupt. One day, my father called my sisters and I into the living room to announce, if any child in this family marries, and he used the N-word, she or he will be disowned from this family. Is that clear? And I didn't say this, but I thought it. Dad, I'm nine years old. To me, the scariest part of that threat was the idea of getting married. So, when Miss Upchurch instructed us to write or print clearly with our number two pencils, I launched forward in my best cursive. Everyone talks about the horror of intermarriage, I wrote. But maybe intermarriage would help bring the two races closer together. Miss Upchurch awarded my paper an A, a gold star, and a place of honour on the felt board. Although I think the paper robins had been taken down by then. At home, the air was thick with smells of yeast and cinnamon. Mum was rolling dough as I walked by her, and she said, Your father wants to see you. I smiled to myself. Oh, he's heard about my success at school. Confident of reward, I opened the door and saw him seated at his desk across the room. Pop was not smiling, and those famous eyes were glaring. I heard about what you wrote at school, he said darkly. His hand rose slowly from the desk, and he pointed his thick index finger directly at me. Don't you ever write something when you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Are we clear? I nodded stupidly. I remember that the hardwood floor was icy under my feet, and I could see flecks of dust floating gently in the slanted rays of afternoon light. I stood before him, vulnerable in my shorts, my skinny legs spilling into my white gym socks, and words fluttering away from me like startled sparrows. For some reason, I had forgotten to stop smiling. 
If only I could have spoken up and told him, Pop, I wrote that essay out of love for you, to heal your anger and your fear. But no nine-year-old would think to utter such strange and dangerous words. Instead, I learned to tell the truth, but tell it slant. But I believe in evolution, and that includes the evolution of souls. Years later, my baby sister Debbie would test Pop's edict by marrying a black man and later giving birth to their daughter, Kenesha. Pop reportedly carried a handgun for weeks after Debbie got married, although what mischief he intended to make with it was never clear. The gun never fired, and I'm happy to say that in time, and not a long time, Pop evolved as America did, and the reason why is simple. He fell in love with Kenesha. Intermarriage had indeed brought the two races closer together. If he'd lived to see how happy and successful his beautiful granddaughter would become, both in love and business, his heart would be proud, as mine is proud of both of them. Oh, and Miss Upchurch? Thanks for that, eh? It took years of therapy, prayer, and hard work to recover it, but... That A helped an honest, worthwhile, and loving boy find his voice. Opening this week's special edition of the Townies podcast was John Slade's story, Miss Upchurch, read by celebrated actor and Ojai Townie, Malcolm McDowell. I am Kim Maxwell. And I am also an Ojai Townie. I teach a weekly writing and performance workshop here in my ridiculously small fishbowl of a town, nestled in the foothills of Ventura County. John Slade was a theater professional and musician of the highest order. He was also the finest of drama teachers, an inspiration and much-needed champion for the students of our public high school. He loved his wife and kids, and Shakespeare, and Walt Whitman. John regularly turned his classroom into an ad hoc sanctuary lunchroom for any students that felt excluded or fringy or like they didn't fit in. He directed my daughter in her very first play, had an intense and heartwarming stare, and an ability to bring out the best in everyone. John passed away on July 7th, a victim of a hit-and-run driver, leaving our town bereft. Although John was a master teacher, he was always a student, and he took my class in 2012. Unfortunately, it was before we started recording for the Townies podcast, so in truly hometown, homespun, neighborly style, Malcolm stepped in to honor the powerful and timely words of the late, great, loving husband, father, and friend, John Slade. We dedicate this week's episode to John and to all of our dearly departed, and to those affected by the violence and bigotry in Charlottesville, Virginia, and around the world. We stand with you in love, equality, and solidarity. To quote John's beloved Walt Whitman, of equality, as if it harmed me, giving others the same chances and rights as myself, as if it were not indispensable to my own rights 
that others possess the same. This is the Townies Podcast. Welcome to the neighborhood. Episode 16, Dearly Departed. Elise, written and performed by Jemmy Reese McDonald. Back again on the Townies podcast is Miss Jemmy, who would choose to walk over driving any day, who adores her lovely cat Ava, and who spins poetry out of her fingers. We love her. You are going first. Your fiery character, your capable and delicate body. When I arrive on Friday mid-morning, you are sitting up in uncharacteristically pragmatic cotton pajamas in a hospital bed in the living room. The pain has drained much of the color from your eyes. You are surprised to see me, you are smiling at me, and I to you. Unwillingly and with astonishing grace, you have given up appointments, driving, paying bills, wearing shoes, making love, eating raspberries, having husbands, handling cloth the color of pale apricots, walking in Paris, snipping flower stalks to fit a certain height of vase, standing at the counter laying out cheese and grapes on a wooden serving board soft with age, in fact standing up at all. Unwillingly and with astonishing strength and grace, you have given up lipstick, earrings, skirts that swirl as you move and pour over your legs as you settle, leading a series of quirky, endearing, long-lived dogs by the leash and sometimes they you. Outright laughter, bare arms, slicing mushrooms, offering wine, texting, writing sequels, pegging personality points, singularity altogether, beginning to, anyway. With astonishing grace, you have given up touching sheets, tablecloths, and comforters with the colors warm, medium, coral, pale yellow, soft, reddish-purple, periwinkle blue, and old, thick cotton white. One of them I'm sitting on now, near you, an embroidered white quilt with a few flower branches strewn around it as if tossed there by the wind. The different colors of thread glistening, it is old and new as you catch my eyes again and hold them and smile, balancing all this pain across eternity for this hour only, wordlessly. How good it feels. I am immersed. Unwillingly and with astonishing grace to show us it can be done, you have given up signing contracts, needing a specific key to any specific door, your driver's license, your passport, email, your elegant, cheerful, lowercase signature at the end of a handwritten letter, looking both ways, taking care of us and sautéing leeks and butter with a touch of dried thyme on a Friday evening as the sun sets and the candles are lit. What you have not given up is loving us, sharp and straight right into us who have gathered around you even sharper this afternoon and through tomorrow, laughing gently with with us. You have not given up, not suffering fools lightly, but it's just us now, and you love us while you're suffering us. 
You have not given up chicken broth for one that's in two successively smaller bowls to make it easier for you to hold while we eat Chinese takeout. You pretend to eat, take two sips with a steady hand with fingernails that are pearly and luminescent, even without polish. I offer to take the soup from you after it's been a while, and you look at me slowly and say, no thank you. Then shift your gaze without moving your head to look beyond me at your brother Jerry, because he's playing a recording of a phone message your dad, who died years ago, left on his cell, playing it off a laptop just to hear his voice, Jerry laughing, you laughing, all of us laughing, with your dad's disembodied, classy sweetness leading the way. You take in the sunlight beyond the porch and you say, it's so beautiful. The next day you will barely speak, too much pain. The day after that, you will barely open your eyes, too much pain medication. The next day after that, there is the whole world lesser by one massive, tiny degree, you. And we all leave the house away from you at different times, over the hours and days afterwards, traveling in different directions by different means to go about the unspeakable task of disentangling the impossible, jabbing, empty place of where you were. And that was Jemmy Reese McDonald, dedicated to Elise Kroll. All Righty Then, written and performed by Julie Denny Hammond. Just another one of those small-town coincidences where the beautiful New Orleans native from your 1980s acting class in Los Angeles winds up as your neighbor in Ojai 20 years later. What a lovely coincidence indeed. If I could stop time, I would go back to the day I was born to relive it or to change anything at all, but just to observe all the interactions with all the people who have touched my life. Who gave me my first smile? Who first truly loved me? And who was my first earth angel? I think I know. But I would just love to watch him loving me and protecting me. My big brother, Randy. A matchbox of our own. A fence of real chain link. A grill out on the patio. Disposal in the sink. A washer and a dryer, and an ironing machine in a tract house that we share somewhere that's green. My favorite expression is all righty then. (laughs) It flows trippingly off my tongue as though from another dimension. It's the perfect beginning All righty then, let's get this show on the road. (laughs) And it's the perfect ending. 
All righty then. I'll talk to you soon. I love you. <laughs> How many zillions of phone calls have I ended that way? But no amount of wishing or hoping or praying or manipulating or encouraging or tweaking make a difference at the end. At the end of the day, at the end of the world as we know it, at the end of a life. You just don't understand, he said. He was a man of few words. Actually fewer than that. <laughs> However, on the last day that he communicated with his words, he was the most articulate, clearest Randy I had ever heard. And he didn't just speak to us. He comforted us. He listened intently. He calmed us. And he greeted everyone with a sweet, warm smile. How you doing? Sometimes a handshake, but mostly a hug. And he showed immense gratitude toward everyone who cared for him. Thank you so much. When the nurses would leave the room, he'd always say to whoever was visiting, they good people. He rakes and trims the grass. He loves to mow and weed. I cook like Betty Crocker. And I look like Donna Reed. There's plastic on the furniture to keep it neat and clean. In the pine saw-scented air, somewhere that's green. On April the 1st, I was sitting on a couch in a private room in a hospice facility in Gulfport, Mississippi. My brother's bed faced away from the window behind me. And he was sleeping, I think. He was never able to see out a window again. He lay on his right side always, his body too weak to move at all. Except later, maybe on April 2nd, when he moved his arms above him effortlessly. His hands reminded me of the two cherubs in the Sistine Chapel. They're reaching their hands toward each other. Except that his hands finally met after dancing a beautiful pas de deux above his eyes. They met and they clasped each other. It was excruciatingly beautiful. But on this day, he was still and quiet. There were no visitors for a little while, just the two of us. And I heard him stir a little bit, so I went over to see if he was comfortable and out of pain. I held his hand in mine. Bye-bye, he said. And I did not want to say goodbye. That I knew for sure. So out of my mouth, all right then. <laughs> and his eyes got big. And he smiled and he laughed and he said, all righty then. <laughs> and then he winked at me and he said, bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Bye-bye. Between our frozen dinner and our bedtime 9.15, we snuggle watching Lucy on our big, enormous 12-inch screen. I'm his December bride. He's father. He knows best. Our kids watch Howdy Doody as the sun sets in the west. A picture out of Better Homes and Gardens Magazine. Far from Skid Row, I dream we'll go somewhere that's green. All right then. That was Julie Denny Hammond in loving memory of Randy Denny. When lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed and the great star early drooped in the western sky in the night. I mourned and yet shall mourn with ever returning spring, ever returning spring, Trinity sure to me you bring lilac blooming perennial and drooping star in the west, and thought of him I love. Disappeared, oh helpless soul of me. In a dooryard fronting an old farmhouse near the whitewashed palings stands the lilac bush, tall growing with heart shaped leaves of rich green. Many a pointed blossom rising, delicate with the perfume strong I love. With every leaf a miracle, and from this bush in the dooryard, with the delicate colored blossoms and the heart shaped leaves of rich green, a sprig with its flower I break. Here, coffin that slowly passes, I give you my sprig of lilac. Here, coffin. 
You just heard John Slade's musical adaptation of the Walt Whitman poem When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed from the album I Sing Walt Whitman. I'm Ken Eros, engineer and co-producer of the Townies podcast. Over the past 10 years or so, John and I worked side by side, oftentimes with my partner, April Theriault, exploring and recording the countless multifaceted musical gems John would bring into the studio. He was a fearless performer and a generous and grateful collaborator. His enthusiasm and encouragement was infectious. We became fast friends and busted each other's chops like brothers. I'll miss his wry smile, his dry wit, and hearing him curse like a sailor over a flubbed take when he thought the mic was off. But thankfully, now, each time I hear John's music, I find him returning to bloom in my heart like the perennial lilac. Thank you, John. Until we meet again. And now, Jean Jacket, written and performed by Katie Newcomer. Oh, Miss Katie, however many of these I write for you, this is your fifth time on the podcast. I'll never run out of glowing things to say. A masters-toting, theater-loving Wonder Woman dedicated to public education. Feels like we have always been best friends. There's an empty road and endless clouds, and a certainty that I am lost. I see no one, but don't feel alone. The longing to speak to her always catches at my throat. I call out her name, the one I never called her. The bubble at my larynx gets my eyes wet. The dull pain of age loss melts over my skin like wax. I wear my grief like an old jean jacket. The wind picks up and swirls my hair, making me smile. There's a chill, and I grip the sleeves with my fingers, pulling them down. My heart beats faster. Who was I before? I wonder if I'd recognize my former self at the store. Would I stop? Would she? I can't quite remember me. The hard sand beneath my feet has deep cracks, like the wrinkles of an ancient willow tree. I could follow one of them, hope it takes me towards some wisdom. I suppose I should get going, towards water or food or another person. I think these things, but do not move. I call out her name again, but this time call her mom. The wind, as if frustrated with my trepidation, whips through my hair again, this time with such force that when I put the strands back behind my ears, I'm facing a new direction. I go back to grip my sleeves. I hate this fucking jacket. Or I want to hate it, to burn it, to pretend I never got it in the first place, to tear it to pieces, cut it up with kitchen shears. But the truth is, sometimes it's the only thing that keeps me warm. It smells like memories and mothballs. It's a gift of love and an inheritance of tragedy. It is bittersweet when it appears on my skin, unexpectedly. That woman had her hair. I smelled her perfume. 
I saw a butterfly. My reflection looked just like her. And once again, I'm wearing that damn jacket. The somewhere I long for is close. I know if I could just get going. What's holding me back? The wind still wants me to move. It blows at my back. Hard enough I can lean against it. My toes rise up and I am resting on my heels. This gust could stop and drop me to the hard cracked ground beneath me if it wanted to, but instead it holds me cradled in between until I decide I'm ready to put down my toes and stand sturdy. The metaphor is not lost on me and I start to giggle. My wind hammock holds me up as my laughs rock me back and forth, as they become more violent and upheaving as they turn to sobs. I look down and see the evidence of teardrops on my sleeve, like it finally rained in this desert. Good thing I have this jacket. I think I'm ready and the wind takes my wordless cue. It pushes me forward and my toes reconnect with the earth. One foot releases and the next foot follows, and it turns out I know how to move forward. I look back to thank the wind, but my voice startles me as it calls out her name once more. I have goosebumps. I put the collar up on this good old jean jacket. I smell her perfume. I carry on. And that was Katie Newcomer for Kathleen Bridget O'Day. Elaine, written and performed by Trudy Froelich. When she is not inspiring us all with her wisdom, sass, and humor, Miss Trudy is busy doing any matter of things for any matter of friends in need. And for her dogs. Ah, Trudes. Thank you for being you. It's October 1982, and the most beautiful woman in the world lay dying at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. I watched the steam spiraling out of a manhole cover, like a transparent snake. The noise of the city exploding all around me. I walk five miles to that hospital every day. A filthy, bony hand reaches up from the corner of 42nd and 3rd. I always drop some change into that outstretched hand, hoping it might make a difference in her life. Well, it's Tuesday, and I wonder how many people know that I'm 26 years old and that my mom is dying, slipping away on Madison Avenue at Mount Sinai Hospital. Oh, how she would have preferred to be buying slips and nylons on Madison Avenue. And I leap up six flights of stairs, the smell of insure and alcohol and death piercing my nostrils. I spend every day with my mom. It's week four, day two. The nurses are smiling and appear like starch shirts from the local laundry. Good morning, Trudy. Nancy, the 7 a.m. charge nurse, always welcomes me. Change of shifts, paperwork, meds reviewed, and the report on which hospital phone booth my dad is making his daily bets. Oh, Dad. I enter the hospital room and see the dust particles in the sun's valiant attempt to spread its light. Her smile was brighter than any sunrise. 
She'd gotten so twisted and frail, like those stale aging pretzels that she'd buy for me, for me from the New York street vendors on all the corners. And I lean over and I kiss her. Mom, let's make you hospital chic before your fan club insists on visiting. Sometimes she turns people away. It's exhausting to pretend that she isn't dying. And I wrap the turquoise velour turban on her head. I notice the wisps of hair. She wasn't born a natural blonde, but she was going to dye one. <laughs> and I apply rose lipstick. She presses her lips together. I lift her black and blue hand and show her how well the color matches her fingernails and then gently slide one foot up to expose rosy toes, perfect little rosy toes, and her eyes are huge with questions. Trude, do you think I'm dying? Our eyes lock. Neither one of us can look away. God, I hate the smell of insure. And I remove the open can and straw from the nightstand. I speak directly into those brown eyes. Well, I think your body is begging to set you free. I think you need to be lighter and more expanded. How dim your view must be getting from this damn room. And I think you can no longer be burdened by your body or the illness that it's hosting. True. What happened to Grace Kelly? I heard the nurses talking. You know, I met her at the perfume counter at Bendel's. We were both buying Val de Versailles perfume. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'd heard the Grace Kelly story many, many times. But I would never tell her that Grace Kelly had died in a car accident just three weeks earlier. And in that moment, her Bendel's Grace Kelly story was new and fresh. And there they stood side by side at Bendel's in their Chanel suits, exchanging pleasantries about Bal de Versailles perfume. Well, a squeaking cart jolts me back into the room, the starkness, the smells, the reality. An orderly smiles at my mom and tells her how beautiful she is. She rolls her eyes. After he leaves, my mom gestures with her delicate finger to move closer. I think he has a crush on me. He always visits. Bring him some candy, okay? Got it, mom. Candy. So, any secrets? Now's the time. Affairs, etc. You first, I answer. Any admirers? Oh, admirers? Dozens, of course. They don't know I have no breasts, little hair, and absolutely no money. <laughs> but I interrupt, and we speak in unison. I smell rich. <laughs> well, we laugh, and then our eyes connect, and I stay all day, and we continue to laugh about who will get what jewelry. She has little left. So much was sold to pay my dad's gambling debts. Her lips stick to her teeth, the cachectic look a dramatic weight loss leaves you with. And so I tear open a glycerin lemon swab. Oh, the fragrance, the hundreds of lemonade stands that she helped me with, the peels of lemon on her veal chops, the endless supply of lemon drops that she'd press into my palm. My little bird pouts her dry lips. I paint the inside of that tiny mouth languidly. She likes that swab. Italian ice, she says. Lemon ones from Little Italy. My favorite from Ferrara's. Should I throw in a cannoli? She smiles. Those incredible pools of amber and brown dancing with the light. Well, when I leave that night, she tells me how much she loves the movie E.T. 
and that it stands for Elaine and Trudy. It's the last movie that we would see together in a New York movie theater. She points to her forehead and says, I'll be right here. <laughs> Not so fast, I say. We have more to discuss tomorrow. You're too thin. You need to eat. Stop at Sarge's Deli and get a sandwich and eat the whole thing. Mom, I'm not too thin, and don't worry, I'll make you really proud at the funeral. <laughs> Promise no black, it's morbid, and it's a cliche. <laughs> well, it's now Wednesday afternoon, and I'm back. They mop the endless hallways that echo with coughs and with beeps. It's devoid of laughter, and I see Dr. Ezra. Ezra's my mom's favorite resident. I think he's a little in love with her. He's young. I think she's going to be his first death. Trudy, we need to talk. His eyes are tired, on for 36 hours. He looks like he needs to tell my mom, tell me that my mom is dying. So much was said without words. Ezra, I know my mom is dying. We just aren't done talking yet. I'm calm and I'm watching the man mop the tiled white floor, his white shoes squeak. Trudy? No more insure, okay? I hate the smell of her breath. I'm giving her cheesecake, cheesecake from Star's Deli. I figure it'll either thrill or kill. <laughs> Trudy, it's gone to her liver. It's going to go fast from here. Who invited it? One breast gets an invite, okay. Second breast was an assumption on its part. Stomach cancer, major party crasher. Who the fuck told it it could play in her liver? Ezra stares at me in his sad, respectful way. It's late, and I kiss my mom and tell her that she is radiant and that one day I'm going to have three children just like her. We stare at one another, and I memorize every detail of her face. The long sable eyelashes framing the brown pools that are sprinkled with gold flecks. The high cheekbones and the curve of the neck. The turban is racked perfectly on her head. She looks like royalty from a bygone era. I fill in her eyebrows with a pencil creating a slight arch of surprise and curiosity. <laughs> Seems fitting after all, she's just days away from her journey home. The monitor is quiet and her hands are delicately folded on the warmed cotton blanket that covers her. I'll see you soon, Mom. You rest. And as if in slow motion, she points to her forehead and says, I'll be right here. And I shall notify the media. <laughs> we blow kisses. It's Thursday, and I've been with her for several hours. I know I have to get to the cafeteria, even if it's for a hot chocolate and a greasy New York corn muffin. I run down several flights of stairs to the cafeteria, sip the hot chocolate, and I'm about to take a bite of the greasy yellow muffin, and I stop. And I look up, and I see Ben, the orderly. They'd like you to come upstairs, Trudy. She's gone, isn't she? Now? I leave for five minutes and now? I run into her room, and there are my brothers hanging over her sobbing, and the man monitors are now silent. 
My dad's in a hospital phone booth somewhere placing a bet. I ask my brothers if I can be with her alone. I lay down next to her and touch her soft cheek. I close her mouth. I close her eyes. And I lean in and I whisper, safe home, Mama. Thank you for all you've taught me. I know you'll always be here to see me, and I love you so very much. You were such a good mother. Well, it's 2017, and I still smell her perfume. When I'm in the rose garden, I feel her around me when I'm picking the roses. I hear her laugh when I laugh. I see her style, humor, and grace in her three grandchildren, who are just like her. I like to go to Bendel's perfume counter when I'm in New York, and I dab a little bit of Bal de Versailles on my wrist, and I imagine my mom and Grace Kelly exchanging pleasantries, and I take a deep breath and say for anyone who cares to listen, we smell rich. <laughs> That was Trudy Froelich in honor of Elaine Froelich. The Townies podcast family bids you adieu with all our love. We leave you now with Perla Bataille's beautiful rendition of The Water is Wide from her album, We Three Kings. The water is wide I can't cross over And neither have I wings to fly Build me a boat That can carry two And both shall roll My love and I There is a ship She sails the sea She's loaded deep As deep The water is wide 
cross over And neither have I wings to fly Build me a boat That can carry Love and I.